Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. I thank you for an opportunity to come together to consider your word, to think about how we might uh, learn from it, grow by it, how we might apply it to our lives. God, I pray that you just encourage us now as we behold your grace, as we think upon your grace, we reflect on the greatness of your goodness and your mercy and your kindness to us. And God, that we would uh, leave here changed by it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So it's important, I think, as we work through the book of Galatians, to think about those very things. To think about the fact that God's law comes and condemns us, that we are all condemned because of the law, that Scripture tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it also tells us, and the main point of Galatians, is that God in His grace has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. That it's not anything that we deserve, that we rightly deserved hell, that we rightly deserved punishment for our sin, but God took that punishment Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be forgiven. And that's the message of Galatians. So I would encourage you as we go through this book over the next several weeks or months, as it's likely to be, that you continue to read through the book of Galatians to reflect on these truths. Last week we looked at Galatians 1, 1 through 5, and we saw Paul's ministry, if you remember, that he was sent as an ambassador by God, that we saw Paul's message, the message of the gospel, that ultimately that it was a message of grace and peace from God through the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, he said, so that he might rescue us. And that rescue was a rescue from sin. It was a positional rescue, but it was also a rescue, uh, rescuing from sin day by day. That we were saved from the penalty of sin, but we're also saved from the power of sin. And we look forward to the day when we will be saved from the presence of sin once and for all. So that was Paul's message, his message of the gospel. And we saw that Paul's motive was to glorify God and see others believe and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as we move into this next section, verses 6-10, through 10, I just want you to keep that in your minds as the background. So without further ado, let's look at our text, Galatians 1, verses 6-10. through 10. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I now striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. So as we look at our text this morning, I hope that it will become increasingly apparent that the overlying theme of this letter is that there's only one gospel. And that the gospel is a gospel of grace. God's unmerited favor. That we didn't earn it, but He showed us favor. There's a lot of information packed into these five verses. 
So we're going to try to work through these verses, verse by verse, so to speak, but I want to do so without missing the context. It's important that as we work through this book of Galatians, we kind of step through it verse by verse, but we also back up at the same time and see the context in which each verse is written. So we'll kind of work through primarily a section at a time or a paragraph or two at a time to get the main idea, but then zoom in as we need to to get Paul's um, application and to see why he chose specific words through the power of the Holy Spirit who inspired him to do so. So my goal this, this morning is to point out four key observations right, from Paul's opening statement in this section, and then, provided we have time, move on to verses 7 through 10 and consider three things that detract us or draw us away from the gospel. So let's look at the first part of our text again, Paul's opening statement. Starting at verse 6, we read this. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you, that's God the Father, by the way, you're deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. I want you to notice four things, four observations from this section. Number one, Paul's amazement. Number one, Paul's amazement. He says, I am amazed. And the word amazed carries the idea of being astounded or more accurately, bewildered. Paul is saying he's having trouble comprehending how the Galatians got to this point. He went to them, remember in his missionary journey, his first missionary journey, he went and he founded the churches in Galatia. Galatia is a region. He started these churches by preaching to them the Gospel of Christ, that though they were sinners, Christ died for them, that He was raised from the dead, and that by receiving Christ as their Savior, that by following Jesus as their Lord, that by trusting in Him and Him alone, they could be forgiven. He preached that message. They received that message. They believed that message. They followed that message. They didn't just say a prayer. They didn't raise their hand in a church service or walk an aisle. That wasn't all they did. They Instead, they actually believed it and lived in light of it. That's what the Gospel is. It's more than just saying a prayer. Salvation isn't just, oh yeah, I did that one time when I was five. You know, I remember meeting somebody one time And I said, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? He sat across from me at my desk in the the church. And I said, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And he said, no. So I went and I shared the Gospel with him. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, I did that. I remember now when I was six. No, no. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus changes your life. These people experienced Life change by the grace and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, I'm amazed. I'm bewildered that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you. You see, he expected that there would be false teachers trying to lure them away from Christ. But he expected that the Galatians would stand firm in light of the things that he taught them. There's little doubt that Paul had previously warned them about such Dangers. Paul repeatedly warns his followers of the dangers of false teachers. In almost every letter, he does so. That's why he says, and actually in verse 9 of our text, he says, As we have said before, so I say again now. In other words, I've said this before. If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. He is to be set aside. He is to be cursed by God. 
Just as Jesus had warned his disciples in Matthew 7.15, Paul was warning the people as well. Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Just as Jesus warned the people, so also Paul had warned the churches of the dangers they faced. And the same warning, by the way, is true for us today. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy. And he said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And he said to the church in Ephesus, he said, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He's speaking to the elders there. And he said, Among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw disciples, to draw the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul was concerned with warning the church in Galatia. And he says, I warned you. I'm amazed that you've turned away from Him who called you. So having seen Paul's amazement, that Not that he was amazed that there was opposition to the Gospel, but that he was amazed that the Galatian believers succumbed to that opposition. Now let's consider the second observation. Number two, the Galatians' instability. So first we have Paul's amazement, and now we have the second observation, the Galatians' instability. You see, the problem was that the Galatians were not grounded. They weren't firmly rooted in the Gospel. And Paul says, you are so quickly deserting him who called. What is he amazed at? He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. I'm afraid that some of our English translations might actually capture the wrong idea because we read this with the wrong uh, misconception or preconceived notion when we read it. The NLT says this. It says, even if not intentionally, uh, we read it this way. It says, I'm amazed that you are turning away so soon, is what it says. And I think what we, we think what it's saying is that Paul is saying, I'm amazed that you're turning away after being saved for only such a short period of time. That's not at all what he's saying. He's saying, I'm amazed at how quickly or readily you turned away after this false teaching came to you. Hear the difference. In other words, the issue is not so much that they had turned away so soon after receiving the Gospel, though they had probably only been believers for about six months. This is the earliest of the, Old, of the New Testament books. One of the earliest. Probably the second New Testament book written. Paul goes on his missionary journey. He writes to the churches in Galatia. Shortly after founding those churches. So they're very young in Christ. But Paul's point is not, I'm amazed that after only six months of following Christ, you, you received this false teaching. The issue is that they received this false teaching as soon as they heard it. It was so quickly after the false teachers showed up. He's saying, I I was with you, you followed Christ for six months, these false teachers come in, and a week later, you're following them. The point is, it was so soon after they received this false gospel, they started believing it. As soon as they heard it. They could have been saved 40 years And Paul would have said the same thing. I am amazed that you are so quickly, readily turning away. 
It wasn't as though these false teachers wore them down after decades and decades of teaching. It wasn't like the false teachers came in and taught and taught and taught and wore them down. They came in and the Galatians readily accepted their perversion of the gospel. Yes, they were, they were, excuse me, they were relatively new believers. But Paul expects them to know better. They've been saved six months. Paul expects them to know better. Listen, folks. This is, this is a valuable lesson for us, I think. As Mark, Deacon Mark often says, it should be understood that the expectation for anyone in the church, especially this church, is growth. Just as you expect your kids to grow and learn, so also it should be understood that we expect you to grow and learn. That you don't expect your kids to stay kids forever. You want them to grow. You want them to learn. And the same expectation should be had in the church. You can't stay a baby forever. And Paul expected them, after only a very short period of time of being believers, to be firmly rooted in the truth. He says, I'm amazed that they came in and that you so quickly deserted the truth. He doesn't say, well, I understand, you know, you're new believers, I get it, you don't really have that, I only was there for a short period of time. And so he says, this amazes me, it shouldn't be that way. This is unusual, unexpected, it bewilders me. You know, if you drive down Route 235 on the way to my house, you'll see these huge trees that came down on top of the power lines during the storm. I took pictures of them, got them on my phone. It's crazy. The, the whole road was closed because there were trees everywhere, these massive trees. And these weren't baby trees. They're, they're probably decades old. Uh, my father was an arborist, so he could probably look at them and say, well, of course that tree was, you know, however, I have no idea. All I know is it's big, right? So it's, it must be old is what I'm thinking. So they've been standing there for, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. And the windstorm came, and they fell over quickly. When you think of the, the length of the windstorm, which was very brief, an evening, a morning, compared to 20 or 30 years of growing, it only took just a short windstorm for those trees to topple over. And that's what we have as, as a picture here. The problem with those trees was that they weren't firmly rooted. The roots simply pulled out of the ground and the trees toppled over. It wasn't even that the trees broke. The whole root system just toppled over in the midst of this storm. That, my friends, is a both, it's both a picture and a warning of what can happen to a believer who doesn't have a firm theological underpinning. A solid grasp of what this book actually teaches. You know, you carry it to church, you bring it with you, you have them in your house, you have them all over your house probably, like most of us do. Right? We revere this book, and then we don't read it. Sunday morning comes, and we're like, what did I do, what did I do with my Bible? I've got to get ready for church. Right? That's a problem, folks. So we're growing older, but our, is our root getting deeper? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Because if not, we're apt to topple over. I think we're too quick to dismiss people's lack of biblical wisdom I've wanted to use this word for a long time, neophyte. I think we're too quick to dismiss people's lack of biblical wisdom and say, oh, they're a neophyte. They're new to this. That's what that means, right? They're new to this whole thing. They don't need to have biblical wisdom. Paul didn't. He said, I'm amazed. You, you quickly deserted the gospel. I'm bewildered by it. 
But I think also, on the other hand, that we see believers who come to church year after year after year, and we automatically assume they've been, that they're growing, that they're deeply grounded when they're not. They're like trees whose roots just grow out, but they never grow down deep inside the soil so they can stand firm. That's why, in, that's why Hebrews 5.12 says this, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Everyone in this church has been saved long enough, who's a member of this church has been saved long enough that frankly, you should all be teachers is the point of Hebrews. Paul says, I'm amazed, churches of Galatia, that you so readily just abandon the gospel. That's why when you read Ephesians 4, you won't belabor this, but you read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and that's the passage that talks about he gave some as, uh, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why did he give them? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ so that they may become mature, so that they're no longer like children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but instead that they grow up and that they grow in maturity for the building up of itself in love. See, if that doesn't happen, I'll tell you what happens. Some, some conference, some Bible prophecy seminar comes along, you get this card in the mail like we talked about last week. And the next thing you know, you're going to this thing, you don't understand what they're telling you, they're teaching confusion, and you're perverting the Gospel of Christ. And you're thinking, I need to keep the Old Testament law. Maybe I need to, go to, I need to start honoring the Sabbath. I need to make sure that from Friday night to Saturday night I honor the Sabbath. I need to make sure that I abstain from certain foods, that I recognize certain days. The whole problem with Galatians. He says, if you're trying to keep the law, the law is going to condemn you. Because that's the law's job, is to condemn. It's to show you your need for a Savior. Even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That's what Scripture tells us. So having seen Paul's amazement, he's astonished that they would turn away, turn their backs on God's grace, and the Galatians' instability, that they were not firmly rooted as they should have been. The third observation I want you to see is number three, that to turn from grace is to turn from God. To turn from grace is to turn from God. The issue is not just that the Galatians were abandoning an idea. That our theology affects who we are and our relationship with the Lord. They weren't just abandoning an idea, but they were deserting God Himself. That's why Paul says this. This is what he's driving at when he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting this theological idea. No, he says, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you. It's a reference to God the Father. He says, Him who called you. They weren't just turning their backs on doctrine. They were turning their backs on God. This theme runs throughout the book of Galatians. Galatians 1.15, he says, But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, called me through His grace, that it was God who called Him through His grace. Verses four, Galatians 4.9, he says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? 
to which you desire to be enslaved all over again. You are freed from slavery, the slavery of trying to be a good person, of trying to keep the law, of thinking that somehow you could measure up. Why do you want to turn back to that? Now that you're known by God, God called you through His grace, why would you turn back to that? And in Galatians 5, he says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion, it didn't come from God. He says, it didn't come from the one who calls you. That when you abandon grace, when you abandon God's message, you turn from God Himself. You see, just as we saw last week, the only way to be in right relationship with God is by His grace, is for His grace and peace to be multiplied to us. We see here that we must be recipients of His grace to be in right relationship with Him. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's purely God's gift. You see, when you take the Gospel and you add your good works to it, it's no longer the Gospel. You poison it. You take something which is pure, you take the pure Gospel, and you sprinkle in a little bit of good works, and it becomes poisonous. It's deadly. Because what you're saying is you're saying, this isn't enough. The Gospel isn't enough. That what I need is I need to add some of my own goodness. That's a serious perversion of the truth. Christ's death. God came in the flesh lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, was raised on the third day, defeating death, promised to come back and rescue us, and we say, thanks God, close, but not quite. Now I need to add some of my good works to sweeten the deal a little bit. Make it a little bit, add a little bit more flavor to that message. The term that Paul uses here is desertion. The picture is that of a military combatant leaving his post and abandoning the country he represents. Punishable, it used to be punishable in this country, by death, right? Rejection of the gospel of grace is a rejection of God. So having seen Paul's amazement, that he was astonished that they would turn their backs on God's grace, Paul, the Galatians' instability, that the problem was that they weren't firmly rooted, and thirdly, to turn from grace is to turn from God Himself, Fourthly, the fourth observation and the last observation I want you to see is that there is only one gospel. The fourth observation, there is only one gospel. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another. He says that this different gospel is not good news at all. It's not another gospel. See, the message of the gospel is made plain and clear. As I've reiterated so many times throughout this message, and it's reiterated in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He was the promised One who would forgive, who would pay the penalty for our sins. And he says, any other good news, says Paul, is not good news at all. Why? Why is any other supposed good news not good news? Because He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, 
but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given by which men, uh, among men, by which we must be saved. That's what Scripture says. And this doesn't fly in our pluralistic culture. That doesn't make it any less true. There indeed is such a thing as objective truth. If I go and lay down in the middle of the road and a car comes and it doesn't see me, it's not going to end well. I can say, I don't believe in the road. I don't believe in cars. I believe that it's perfectly safe for me to do so. It doesn't mean that I will be safe because there is such a thing as objective truth. If I jump off the roof and think I can fly, which I tried one time when I was a kid. Don't try that. I tried to jump off my porch thinking maybe if I flap my arms enough, right? It doesn't make it true. That's why John 14, 6, T's favorite verse, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to, comes to the Father but through me. There's one God, one mediator also between God and man, and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Because Christ alone could pay that penalty. Christ alone was God incarnate. Christ alone lived a sinless life. Christ alone rose from the dead, triumphant over death. So as we consider these four observations, Paul's amazement, the Galatians' instability, to turn from grace is actually to turn from God. It's a desertion of God. And that there's only one Gospel message. Paul's message is clear. His message throughout this section is this. Do not abandon the Gospel. Do not abandon the good news of Jesus Christ. So that's verse 6, folks. Don't abandon the Gospel. And now we'll look at verses 7-10 through 10 and look at three, three things that draw us away or detract from the Gospel. The first thing that detracts us from the Gospel is, we see in our text, confusion. Number one, confusion. So here's really where I want to focus for an application standpoint. These three things that detract us, draw us away from the truth of what God has done through, for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Number one, confusion. Paul continues in verse 7, and he says, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the Gospel of Christ. Again, they don't come in and say, this Gospel is nonsense, this is foolishness, don't believe any of it. We often like to think that those people are enemies. Those people out there who say, those idiots going to church on Sunday, what are they doing? Don't they know that Meet the Press is on? Don't they know that they can sit at home in their slippers and read the newspaper and relax? Don't they know that all that's just 2,000 years of tradition and nonsense? That's not the problem. The problem is those who talk gospel-ish, talk about church, talk about Jesus, talk about God, and just slightly distort the truth. There's enough truth to make it sound like it's real. And he says, there are some people who are distorting the gospel and they're disturbing you. The word disturbing carries the idea of causing mental distress. It's to throw someone into confusion. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 14, 26. It says, when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They were confused. They were distressed. And they cried out in fear. You know, this is a very real danger today, just as much as it was in Paul's day especially with all this radio and TV and internet, we have everyone has a platform now. Everyone has an opportunity to share their distortion of the truth. And I've seen the effects. 
They come and they teach confusion to the confused and make them more confused. So often, the way this plays out is those who are going through trouble, those who are struggling in their marriage, those who are struggling with parenting, those who are struggling intellectually with what they're, what they're being taught, they bring in some newfound idea or truth and they confuse them. They bring confusion to the confused. It's sad and it's terrifying. Paul says there are some who are distorting the gospel and they're confusing you. They're disturbing you. They're bringing anguish to you. So be weary of them. The second thing that, dis- that detracts us from the gospel is number two, charisma. Number two, charisma. Paul says this. He says this in verses 8 and 9. But even if we, this is me, Paul, and all my cohorts, even if we, or even an angel from heaven, imagine it was possible for an angel to come down from heaven and preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so again I say now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. In other words, it doesn't matter how impressive they are. It doesn't matter how impressive the guy on the radio or the TV or whatever is. It doesn't matter what school he went to or how many letters are after his name. If his or her message doesn't line up with the Scriptures, then run. That's what this teaches. Paul says, I don't care if an angel comes down from heaven and says something other than the Gospel, distorts the Gospel of Christ, don't believe it. Even further, I'd say not just run from those who distort the Gospel, I'd say that the Gospel needs to be the central message, the underlying message of any and all messages that any Christian teacher needs to bring. That ultimately, if you can't see the Gospel in their message, then there's a problem. The Gospel needs to shape every single message that a pastor or a teacher brings from the Scriptures. I was once a part of a church that was looking for a pastor. And one of the qualifications, this was prior to me becoming a pastor, and one of the qualifications that constantly came up that as something that people were looking for was people said they were looking for a dynamic speaker. Well, what do you want in a, in a pastor? We want a dynamic speaker. We want somebody who's just really going to wow us. That is hogwash. That is the most nonsense. And the, I'm not saying you shouldn't, that somebody can't be dynamic in the way they present. But what I'm saying is what you need to look for, a church should look for someone who consistently brings forth the gospel message. One who is faithful to the word of God. And I'll tell you what, some of the driest preachers in American history and human history have had some of the most profound impacts because they spent more time on their knees, more time in the Word, more time relating to and being concerned with what God was going to say through them than the way in which they were going to say it. That's why I spend, and I don't say this to puff myself up, I hope this doesn't come this way, I spend hours preparing the message and no time preparing to present the message. I don't practice the message. Not that that's wrong. Sure, if I had time, if I felt like I had even more time to be in the Word, if I felt like I could dig deeper. But my first priority is, what does the message say? My second priority is, am I living in light of it myself? Have I applied this to my own heart? 
Or am I just going to be up there as a talking head telling them how to do stuff? And how does this relate to the gospel? How does this lift up Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection? See, I preached the gospel week after week after week. As I said last week, it was a church member that once asked Luther, he said, why do you supposedly asked Luther this, why do you preach the gospel to us week after week? And Luther replied and said, because week after week you forget it. You see, we need to hear the gospel again and again and again. And it's not charisma, it's not entertainment that we need, it's gospel preaching that we need. So the third thing that will lead us away from the gospel, we've seen that confusion can lead us away, that charisma can lead us away, comfort can lead us away from the gospel. In verse 10, Paul says this. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You see, what Paul is getting at here is he's saying, I'm not trying to please you. I'm not even trying to please myself. I'm only trying to please the Lord. You see, false teaching often appeals to our desire to please ourselves. False teaching calls us to please others and to please ourselves and not to please God. The Gospel calls us to please God. And the Gospel actually makes us uncomfortable. The Gospel calls us to do things like what Matt did earlier and share his little stand up here and share his graphic. This is how I see this and this is something that God's showing me. The Gospel calls us to be uncomfortable. We don't live for our own pleasures, or even the pleasures of men, we live as a servant of Christ. Paul writes in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. They're servants too, he says, but not of Christ, but instead of their appetites, of themselves. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive hearts of the unsuspecting. They come in, they make you comfortable. And their smooth and flattering speech leads you astray. They say things like, you can have your best life now. Right? They say things like, Jesus died to make you happy. Jesus died to make you wealthy. And happiness and joy are elements of the Christian life. They're certainly... Uh, we, can, we can, as we live in a way that honors Christ, that we should be happy, that we should receive joy from that. But God didn't die to make us happy. He died to save us from our sins. God didn't die to give us riches here on earth, but to give us riches in heaven. Jesus didn't preach a message of comfort and ease. He didn't present a prosperity gospel. He didn't tell His disciples to seek the approval of men. For any such gospel is not gospel at all. Instead, Jesus said things like Luke 9.23, where he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, be willing to die, was the point, and follow me. In modern vernacular, what Jesus said was, Anyone who wants to follow me must be willing to sit in an electric chair. He must be willing to die for me. So do you want to come and follow me? That's what Jesus said. Lay down your life is what the Gospel calls us to do. The Gospel calls us not to live a life of comfort, but to live a life of self-denial and service. So all of this, by way of review, we've seen Paul's amazement. He's astonished that they would turn their backs from 
God's grace. We've seen the Galatians' instability that they weren't firmly rooted, though they should have been. We've seen that to turn from grace is to turn from God. And we've seen that there's only one message. And then Paul says, in light of all that, there's these three dangers. The dangers of confusion, the danger of charisma, and the danger of comfort. So the question is this. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this message and then live in light of it? Well, I'm going to tell you this. Be careful. Hold fast to the truth of the Gospel. Preach it to yourselves day in, day out. Remind yourselves of the Gospel. Be in God's Word. Remind yourself of the grace and forgiveness that has been offered to you in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Charles Spurgeon said, he said this about the Gospel, cling tightly with both your hands. When they fail, catch hold with your teeth. And if they give away, hang on by your eyelashes. Never, ever, ever let go of the Gospel of Christ. We need to be careful. We need to take heed that we stand lest we fall. So, we, so how do we apply this? Number one, we stand up against confusion. We need to be like the Bereans who examine the Scriptures. They studied to show themselves approved. We need to make sure that we are examining the Scriptures day in and day out. That when I preach, that you say, is that true? Is that really in light of what Scripture says? The things you hear in Sunday school, that you're examining them. And you can't do that if you never open the book. We've got to be in it. So we stand up against confusion. Number two, we can't be drawn away by other people's charisma. We can't be drawn away by charisma. We need to love the message, not the messengers. We need to desire meat, not entertainment, folks. And somebody once said to me, Actually, I think it was Mark. He said, your messages are kind of cerebral. Praise God, right? My job is to make you think. Uh, You can sit and do mindless activities this afternoon when the Patriots are on TV. That's entertainment. This is not entertainment. We're called to think. We're called to grow. Christians who don't love books, that's a problem. Especially this book. Because God speaks to us through this book. So don't be drawn away by entertainment. Paul said, he said, or Peter said in 2 Peter, he said, I want to, he says three times, right? I want to remind you of these things. I want to remind you of these things. I want to remind you of these things because I want you to be able to remember the gospel when I'm gone. I love the way 2 Peter says that. You look it up sometime, 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 15. He says, I want you to remember the truth of the gospel when I'm gone. So I'm going to remind you, and then I'm going to remind you again, and then I'm going to remind you again as long as I have breath in my body. And that is my desire for this church. As long as you let me stand up here, I will proclaim the gospel of Christ by His grace. So stand up against confusion. Don't be drawn away by charismatic teaching. Desire meat, not entertainment. And then thirdly, how do we apply this? Well, rather than seek a life of comfort and the approval of men, we are called to submit to Christ. We don't want to be like the Pharisees. right? Many of the rulers, it says, in John 12, believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees who were not confessing Him, for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, they, they, they sought the approval of men rather than the approval of God. We need to not be like that. Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, Do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Don't serve the flesh, but instead serve 
God alone. Don't serve yourself. Don't serve other men. But instead, submit your life to Christ and seek His glory and His approval. The goal of the Christian life, summed up in Paul when he says in Galatians 2.20, and I pray that we would live the same way, that we would say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So I would encourage you, in light of this passage, to be careful, to stand firm, that we have a clear instruction from this passage. Stand up against confusion. Don't be drawn away by charismatic or entertaining ideas, but grow deep in the Word of God. Let your roots sink deeply into the soil so that when long and arduous and heavy storms come, you can stand firm. And don't seek the approval of men or even your own glory, but instead seek to live for God and for His glory. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, as we think about our own inability to do these things in and of ourselves, we thank You for the grace You've given us. God, I thank You that uh, You have promised that You will carry us through to completion. God, that You have told us to work out our salvation, to, to grow in our knowledge of sin and, and over the power of sin. But God, that You have told us also that it is You who works in us to enable that to happen. God, give us an extra measure of grace as we seek to live for You and for Your glory. God, help us to be deeply rooted in the truth of Your Word, to understand and know Your Word. God, to not just be hearers, but also doers. God, to not be drawn away by new and creative ideas, but instead to look always to what Your Word says and to lean on You and to grow day by day in our service for Your kingdom. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.